Father, I pray that as we sit under um, your word, I ask first that you help me to be a good steward of the word that you have given, but that you take this word and you apply it to our lives just as it is needed for each one of us at this time. And Lord, as it's your word, we pray that you would heal our hearts, you would heal our minds and heal our bodies even as we engage under and sit sit ourselves under your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel to do something, uh, to do the message a little differently from what I planned. So if the guys at the songboard, you can have a free morning. We don't need to put up the text. I'll still preach from the Bible, don't worry. I'm so uh, convinced that God has put this service together. Uh, There was such a clear agreement at the beginning of the service as different teams prayed around this idea of the one thing and seeking God. Uh, In my language, I say that the service so far has been about loving God, giving our lives to Him, devoting it to Him. And as I was preparing, um, actually thinking about the Sunday, even a number of weeks ago, I felt so clearly I need to talk about loving your neighbor, which is quite different from loving God, but actually not. You may remember in the worship time, uh, Chris spoke a little bit and he said, we need to become aware And there's this element in our lives, there's this reality that when we become aware of God, that also something happens that we realize that God is aware of our neighbors as well. And so as we love God with all our hearts and with everything we have and we give our lives to Him, one of the things we realize is God cares around about others as well. As much as He cares about us, as much as He's devoted and completely passionate about us, He loves others too. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about loving your neighbor. We've been speaking about being a body of heroes. And probably what I want to say in essence is if you want to be a hero, I'm not going to pick a specific person. I want to pick a specific story Jesus told. But if you want to be a hero, you need to learn to love God and to love others well. And so as we look at Jesus' life, the, the passage we're going to look at this morning is in Luke chapter 10 from verse 25 to 27. It's the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. Has everyone at least heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Okay, we want to look at it a little bit in context today. And so the text is not going to come up on the screen. Is that okay? I'm going to try and tell the story. Hopefully I tell it well. Luke 10, 25 to 27. So if you're an avid note-taker, there's your scripture reference for this morning. Just a little bit earlier on in the Gospel of Luke, We've read about, we read about the transfiguration. Jesus had this mountaintop experience where he's transfigured, he's revealed beyond his humanity, he's revealed in his glory. He meets with Moses and Elijah. It's a God moment. And he comes down from the mountaintop, has to deal with some deliverance. You may remember a few weeks ago, Apostle Louis preached on the father who brought his son to Jesus. And that happened straight after the transfiguration. But the next thing that happens in Jesus' life after this time is that he starts moving towards Jerusalem. He starts journeying from up in Galilee, a little bit down. He's got moving south towards Jerusalem. And we come across this story in Luke chapter 10. He's, early part of Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 72 as he's journeying towards Jerusalem, and they go and they minister in the towns and the regions. And as he's on this journey to Jerusalem, he gets confronted by, uh, in some translations, they say an expert of the law or a teacher of the law. Now, in the first century Jewish world of that time, to be a lawyer and to be a a religious person were not divorced. They were the same things. 
all lawyers were religious people. So this lawyer was probably a priest. He really knew his Bible well. He knew the legal aspects of the Bible. Probably as a minimum, he would have been able to memorize the first five of the books of the Bible and recite them. That's quite fun. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, like verbatim. He could probably say them. It was kind of how familiar was. He's an expert in the law, Luke tells us. And then Luke tells us that as he comes to Jesus, he comes to him to test him. He doesn't come as a seeker. He doesn't come with a perhaps a sincere heart, maybe at least not initially. He comes to test Jesus. And he asks Jesus, and in the story there's three questions. He asks Jesus, two from the lawyer, one question from Jesus. And just so that you know, when Jesus asks a question, he goes for the heart always. Okay, so Jesus' question is coming, but let's look at the two questions from the lawyer. First question he asks Jesus to test him, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, understanding where he's coming from, says to him, well, what is written in the law? What's written in the Old Testament? How do you read it? In other words, how do you interpret the Old Testament? You're the expert. You tell me how you read the question. And then he basically quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 18. Deuteronomy 6, he says, Well, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Basically, you've got to love God with everything. He's got to be, in the language we're using in the service this morning, he's got to be the one thing. You've got to love God with everything. And then he goes on and he says, and you've got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. And this is pretty much a stock standard answer for first century Judaism. What do you need to be in right relationship with God? What do you need to be to be sorted with God? Well, you've got to love him with everything, and you've got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus answers replies to him and says, you've answered correctly. That is right. That's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You need to love God. You need to love your neighbor. Now, that's quite an interesting answer. Because, you know, there's other places where, for example, Nicodemus came to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same kind of question. And he says, you must be born again. And that's a question and answer that we're quite familiar with. But in this instance, Jesus says, you've got to obey the two greatest commandments. You must obey the law. You must love God and you must love your neighbor. You've answered correctly, Jesus tells him. And then Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. So Jesus straight away moves the discussion to about how do we live. This is more than mental assent. This is more than just agreeing with that is the correct interpretation of the law. This is more than just belief. You must do this and you will live. You have to Model your life after this. You have to pattern your life. You have to actually live this out. You can't just think about it. You have to do it. Probably today, if you're sitting here and that's your question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is kind of the same, but it's a bit modified. This answer was given before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the answer is still, how do you love God today? Well, you accept his love by believing in what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. You see, you cannot earn the love of God, but there is a price to it. It's a price you and I could not pay, so Jesus paid it for us. So part of loving God today is accepting what Jesus has done. It's about agreeing with God that we're alienated from him, 
that we are sinners. That's part of loving God. And confessing that as such and accepting what he has done and then choosing to reorientate our lives. Instead of living for ourselves, we make him the one thing. Instead of going after our own dreams and desires, we live for him. We make him, we use language, we make him Lord. We make him master. He's at the center and he's first and I am not. That's called repentance in a long way. And that's how we love God today. Sometimes, let me put it this way, I think one of the things that modernity, living in a post-scientific era in a modern world, and I know people talk about a post-modern world now, but one of the residues that is left in us is we tend to live or to think of the world in an either-or kind of way. It's either this or that. And there are really things like that. Either you believe in Jesus or you don't. Either you are then going to heaven or you are not. Okay? But sometimes we create distinctions in this either-or mindset that are not biblical distinctions. Perhaps we create a distinction between loving God and loving our neighbors. Or between worship and, let's use preaching as an example, between loving God and loving our neighbors. The biblical view is not this either-or world. The biblical view is we live in a both-and world. The both-and world is I love God with everything and I love my neighbor. I worship him flat out, and I take good notes when the pastor preaches, okay? Um, Or I engage in the word of God, and I do practical things to live out my faith. So loving God, loving my neighbor. Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. If this is your sincere question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God by accepting Jesus Christ. Love him with everything you had, with everything you have, your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He will come and live in you with his spirit and help you to live a new life. And part of that new life is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. But the story doesn't stop there. This expert of the law carries on, and he says to Jesus, uh, the scripture says, but wanting to justify himself. Okay, now he's answered correctly. Jesus has pushed him in the right direction, but he wants to justify himself. I'm not sure his motives are all that good yet, you understand. First he comes to test Jesus. Now he wants to make sure that he's got some things sorted. But perhaps here some of his heart is starting to enter the conversation. Some of his heart is starting to enter the discussion. And he says, well, wanting to justify himself, well, who is my Neighbor, this is the second question. Who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love as I love myself? This is a very important question. But he's asking it from kind of the wrong place because what he's really wanting to know is who do can I love and actually are there people I don't have to love if I want to be sorted with God? If I want to be right with God, who must I love? He's kind of presupposing that there's some people that you love and some people that you don't. That's what's behind this question. And now Jesus does something he often does, but something very interesting. He doesn't answer the question with, go back to the Bible. That's how he answered the first question. How much must I do to inherit eternal life? Go back to the Bible. The answer to this question, probably because there's a little bit more heart entering this conversation, Jesus tells a parable. Okay? He tells a story with a purpose. Now, 
we want to look at that parable a little bit now. But our challenge is, in our modern setting, we don't often understand how the parables worked in the first century. And I don't want to get into a whole lesson here, particularly on interpreting parables. So can I take a little bit of license to try and help you just understand the point of a parable or how a parable works? So parables kind of work like jokes. Okay? Parables are not jokes. They work like jokes. Is that okay? So if you want to tell someone a joke, what's the point of a joke? It's not difficult. What's the point of a joke? To make people laugh. It's in the reaction. It's in the response. And that's the purpose of a parable. A parable's purpose is to produce a response, often to expose the heart. Now, particularly if we look at how Jesus used parables, he used parables to show people what was in their hearts. Because, you see, stories can do that. Stories show us what's in the, in the heart. Now, when we tell jokes, and I'm not a good joke teller, so I'm not going to tell a joke, but when we tell jokes, the important part of a joke is often the punchline. We call it the punchline, that little twist at the end that makes it funny. All the details in the joke are actually just like the setup. They're the points of reference. Okay, they help string us along. The, you know, uh, as we'll see in this coming parable going from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's a detail. It's got nothing to do really with the point. It's just to help us take along. And so, for example, when you're telling a joke, um, one of the other things that's inherent is there's certain things you need to understand to get a joke. So, for example, in South Africa, and you forgive me now if, if I step on anybody's toes, but for example, if you want to tell a joke about the Fanamadvas or the Shabalalas or the Kumalus, what do you need to understand? You need to know that within the culture, there's a certain connotation with those surnames. Okay? So, for example, and I won't tell a blonde joke, but if you tell a blonde joke, why is a blonde joke funny? Because there's a completely incorrect connotation with blonde people. Isn't that so? Any blonde people? Okay. But there's a certain connotation that's linked with people of certain hair color, and I'm not going to say what it is because that would be discriminatory. Okay. But if you don't know the connotation, if you don't know the cultural association with the Shabalalas or the Kumalos or the Funamadvas or with blondes, then the joke isn't funny. So uh, in our ministry school for many years, now we always have Korean students. We've just blessed that God has given us some favor in the community. And, you know, in Korea there's not many blonde people. Did you know that? Okay. And so when, if, you, if you ever tell a blonde joke, they just look at you. Because they don't get it. Why? Because they don't have the cultural... Connotation. Now, why am I analyzing jokes? Uh, what am I exegeting jokes for? Parables work like jokes. For a parable to get a parable, the point is that you get it. The point is in the reaction. But to get it, you need to know certain cultural things. You need to be an insider. So our challenge with interpreting parables is we're not cultural insiders in the first century world. And so we need to do a lot more study and research to, to get that. And that's also one of the reasons people interpret parables not so well is because they don't understand how the parable works. Is that okay? So the teacher of the law, wanting to justify himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I believe that's the important question this morning. Who is my neighbor? And in response, Jesus tells the parable that it seems to be quite well known here, the parable of the good Samaritan. And he says this. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way he gets mugged. I'm paraphrasing, okay, but it's in the Bible. He gets mugged, robbed, stripped bad, left for dead along the road. While he's lying there 
half dead next to the road, a priest comes by. He looks at the man, crosses over to the other side of the road, and walks past. The next person that comes along this road is a Levite, someone who worked in the temple as well, familiar with the things of God. He looks at the man, crosses over to the other side, and walks past. Now, what a cultural insider, first century Jewish person, would have heard with that is that was, well, that's rather surprising. Why didn't the priest and the Levite help? Now, their motive and why they helped and didn't help is not important to the parable. We don't need to know their motives. The, the thing we need to just understand is they didn't behave like they were expected to behave, or perhaps like we would expect them to behave. They just didn't do it. And then Jesus goes on, and as he tells the story, he says, but, but, contrast. By way of contrast to the priest and the Levite, a Samaritan comes along. And he sees the man, and he has compassion on him, and he takes him to the nearest inn, and he pays the bills, and he treats his wounds, and he makes sure he's well looked after. And he even says, look, I've got to go, but I'll leave some money behind. Imagine trusting an innkeeper that much. I'll leave, it's like leaving your credit card details with someone and says, just, you know, billet. And he takes care of the man. Now, we read that, and we notice the compassion and the care for the, the vulnerable person. Because that's what kind people do. That's what good people do. They help those in need. But there's an insider cultural thing here that we don't get, like we maybe don't get about the fundamentals and so on. We have to understand how the first century hearer would have heard this parable. And when they heard the word Samaritan, it would have been like a waving a red cloak thingy in front of a bull. Okay? It was like waving a red flag. Because we need to understand something about how they saw the Samaritans. To do that, we need to go a little back in, in history. What had happened previously in history, in about 700 and some things before Jesus, is that the people who lived in the area of the northern Israel, often called the northern kingdom, they were taken into exile by the Assyrians. This was a strategy of warfare, is that when you conquered a region, you took the indigenous people and you took them away. And then you took people from another area that you'd also conquered and you made them go live there. Now, you didn't take all the people out because you didn't want to completely destabilize the economy, but you took substantial numbers out and then you transplanted other people in. It's a great way to stop uprisings. It's a good, probably a good strategy of war because you can't revolt if you're scattered. And so they moved the Assyrians, moved foreigners into this previously Jewish territory. And, people, and they brought with them their beliefs and their gods and their systems in addition then to the Jewish people that had been left behind and that were living there. And inter over time, hundreds of years, intermarriage happened and a new religious system actually developed in this time. It was kind of a combination between the Jewish faith and the religions and the faiths that they brought with them. And so they lived differently. They worshipped differently. They were kind of, and this is not a nice word, but it's the truth of it, they were like half-breeds. They were kind of Jewish, but not Jewish. And so in Jesus' first century world, the Samaritans were disregarded by Jewish people. They were despised. They were marginalized. They were ostracized because they weren't, they were kind of like us, but they're not good enough to be one of us, maybe if I can use that kind of language. They were ostracized. And so when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, 
all this would come up in this teacher of the law, the legal expert's mind. He would go, but the Samaritan is not supposed to behave like that. He's not one of us. The Samaritan behaves actually like God would behave. The Samaritan behaved like the good Jewish believers should have behaved at that time. The Samaritan behaves in an unexpected way. The priest and the Levite, they didn't, and the Samaritan does. And this would have been noted, this would have produced a response in the heart of this lawyer, this legal expert that Jesus is engaging with here. And then Jesus asks him a question. He says, which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who was mugged? Which one of these three? And his answer is quite revealing. He replies and he says, it's the one who had mercy. Now, when we read this parable, one of the things we tend to read is that, well, to be a good neighbor means to show compassion and to have mercy on those who need help. Is that true? Yes, that is part of what it means to be a good neighbor. But you see, that's not the question that's on the table here. The question that the legal expert came to Jesus with wasn't, what does it, how can I be a good neighbor? That's not the question to, to which Jesus told this parable. This parable doesn't answer the question, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? This parable answers the question, who is my neighbor? And so when Jesus says to this expert in the law, which one of the three, his options were the priest, the Levite, and the easy answer was the Samaritan. But the teachers in the law's heart is so exposed because he can't even say the name. He can't even go, oh, Jesus, it's easy, it was the Samaritan. He can't even say it. Because what has Jesus done with this story? He's exposed in the teacher of the law's heart his attitude towards the Samaritan. He can't even say his name. He says, well, it's, you know, the one who had compassion. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. So this is an interesting interaction with Jesus and this man. It starts with, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God with everything, as hard as you can, and love your neighbor. And then wanting to be justified, this legal expert says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And he realizes now that the Samaritans actually are his neighbor. Can I tell you what the, the traditional answer probably in the first century Jewish world was to this question of who my neighbor is? They would probably have thought, well, God has told us to love our neighbors. That's in Leviticus, it's in the Bible, it's something we have to do. So who's my neighbor? They would have been, a comfortable answer would be, well, my own kind, Jewish people. They're my neighbors. This guy's an expert in the law, so he would have read the rest of the chapter. They didn't have chapters in those times, but he would have read on in Leviticus, just further down, Leviticus 19, about 33, I think. And there it says that you need to love the resident alien who lives among you, because once you were aliens in Egypt, and now you need to love the resident alien in your midst. So this teacher of the law, being an expert, he would have known that too. So to answer the question within his paradigm would have been, well, to love my neighbor means to love the Jewish people, and it means to love the resident alien. Now, that might have been a bit higher grade. But there's an interesting time in the history of Israel here because technically the nation is under Roman occupation. They've been, as it were, invaded by the Romans. And so 
within their living space, they've got Jewish people, they've got resident aliens, and then they have invaders. They've got the Romans that are living right here in their midst. And so I'm sure in many Jewish homes and around many Jewish campfires, one of the questions could have been, are we supposed to love the Romans? Is that something really that God would expect of us to love the, the Romans too? And so it's probably in this broader context that this question is also asked about who is my neighbor. In effect, what Jesus is really saying to this man is, is if you want to inherit eternal life, you need to love the Samaritans. Now, what does this love mean? It doesn't mean that he had to suddenly agree with the false religious system of the Samaritans. It doesn't mean he had to agree with the things they were doing wrong. But it does mean he had to, the New Testament Greek word is agape them. He had to act with their best interests in heart. He had to love them as he would love himself. This love that God expects when he says you must love your neighbor is agape love. It's a love where you act in the best interests of another. Most often found in verb form. So it confirms this idea of Jesus that love is something you do, not something you feel. Another of our modern challenges is that we live in this world where the entertainment industry, and if you're in the entertainment industry, it's, it's completely fine. But one of the things the entertainment industry has done, Bollywood, Nollywood, Bollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood, okay, they've created this idealized idea about love, that love is a completely emotive thing. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, he's not asking us to have warm feelings towards them. He's asking us to act in their best interest. There's an element of the will that comes into this. There is an element of emotion because as I love God, he gives me love for my neighbor. So it's, there's a choice and a feeling. You can't divorce loving your neighbor from loving God. It's I love God and as I love him, he pours his love in me, which gives me extra impetus to love to love others. Perhaps a way to help us hear this parable afresh, because it's a well-known parable, is to try and tell it this way. One Sunday morning, happened to be the 15th of July, 2018, a man was traveling from Hatfield Christian Church to a dangerous part of town. As he was traveling, a group of people mugged him, robbed him, left him lying next to the side of the road, half dead. As he was lying there, along came the preacher. Let's call him Neil, hypothetically. Along came Neil, and he saw the man lying there, and he pretended not to see, and he just drove on past. Sis, Neil. As the man is lying there, the next person that came along was the Hatfield member, just attended church. And they see the man, can't speak to their motive, but they also just drive on past. Maybe they saw Neil doing it and they thought, well, okay, do what Neil does. Um, or justify, well, if Neil could leave him, then so can I. But the, the motive's not important. We don't act as we're expected to behave. And then the next person that drove past was your Samaritan. Who is that one person or one group of people 
or one kind of person that you've perhaps disregarded, excluded, wanted out. Perhaps it's someone that has wronged you deeply and in a real way, not in an imagined way. Who is your Samaritan? Now, in a room this diverse, as soon as I pick an example, I'm going to, half the people are going to get stuck on the example. But it could be the corrupt government official. It could be the greedy corporate person. It could be a perpetrator. It could be a convicted person. It could be anybody who is your Samaritan. And maybe that's something as God has been speaking to our hearts this morning, we need to consider. Your Samaritan came along and he saw the man lying there that had been mugged. He picked him up. He took him to the nearest hospital, a private one. And he gave them his credit card and said, take care of him and do what's ever needed, just bullet to the plastic. And he left him in his care. The point to the parable, as Jesus told it, is that it exposes our hearts towards the Samaritan, towards the other. And so how would you answer this question this morning, as in who is my neighbor? One word of caution, and it's a very similar word to how the lawyer was looking at this question, this first century legal expert. It's increasing, it's a global phenomenon. Obviously this direct South African application, but globally there's a rise of something that some people are calling a politics of identity or identity politics. It's about, it creates this idea of us versus them. Some people say it's a resurgence of nationalism where it also creates this idea of an us versus them. If you want to answer this question from that framework, who is my neighbor, from an identity politic framework, you will always answer it incorrectly. And you'll miss the point that Jesus is after here in our hearts this morning. As disciples, as followers of God's, of Jesus, as citizens of God's kingdom, when we're confronted with the question of who is my neighbor, it is the person in need, as the parable perhaps would help us see. It is my own kind. It is the resident alien, whatever that would mean for us. But it's also the person that we get stuck with in our hearts for whatever reason. And so Jesus comes to perhaps us this morning through his word and he says, will you love? If we want to be a community of heroes, we cannot only love those that it's easy or comfortable or that are like us to love. We have to love, can I use the words, the other. We have to love our Samaritans. And so who this morning is your Samaritan? Who is the one that Jesus is challenging you to love? So my title for the message this morning was Loving Your Neighbor. Who is my neighbor? The biblical answer is all people, all, everyone. No one is excluded from being your neighbor. There is no one we are excused to not love. No one. That doesn't mean we condone them and we agree with their wrongdoing. We all understand that. Okay? Doesn't mean we condone wrongdoing, but we have to love everybody. So who is my neighbor? All people. Everywhere. But how do I love everyone? Because that is overwhelming. At least I find it overwhelming. Perhaps you just like higher grade. Okay. 
How do I love everybody? And I think here's an answer or a phrase perhaps that can help us to start engage with this properly. How do I love everybody? One at a time, as best as I can. One at a time, as best as I can. So when someone walks into my office, one at a time, as best as I can. When that taxi driver cuts me off, one at a time, as best as I can. When I meet my Samaritan, or when I encounter, when you encounter your Samaritan, one at a time, as best as I can. How am I going to do that? How is that even possible? I love God with everything I have. Love God. Let him energize me. Let him give me what he needs. What I need, sorry. He needs nothing. What I need. He gives me his spirit that gives me the power. Can I just use plain language? Gives me the power to get over myself and love others. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love. But I love him with everything. And as I do that, as Chris alluded to, I become aware, not only of him and his presence, but of my neighbor. And then I love them one at a time, as best as I can. Won't you stand and let's pray together. Father, as we stand in your presence this morning, you know, and, and perhaps some of us know, who our Samaritans are. Those people that perhaps we don't believe are worthy of love. Those people that we find difficult to love. Those that have wronged us even. But Lord, you know, and nobody else perhaps needs to know that, but as each of us stand before you, the King of the universe, the lover of our souls, you know, Lord, who our Samaritans are. And I pray for us, both as individuals and as a community of faith this morning, that we, you would help us to love better. Help us to see the one and to love as best as we can. And Lord, we know we need to become better at it. We know also that you said that by this, the world will know that we are your disciples. By this, the world will know that we follow you is by our love for one another. But I also believe, Lord, it's by how we love others as well that are not like us, others that are different from us. And so, Lord, we confess where we need to, where we have withheld love. We confess where we have not loved our neighbors, perhaps even purposefully. And we ask that you forgive us our sins and that we will really never be the same again, that we can look at people with fresh eyes, eyes where the veil of, this, of Samaritans has been lifted, and we can see others made in your image, needing your love, and where appropriate and where possible, Lord, help us to be the channels of that love. I pray, Lord, for those here who Perhaps this Samaritan is someone who has really wronged them. I pray, Lord, that you help them to forgive. For those in that situation, your, your first act of love is to, come, is to come to a place of forgiveness. And if that can take a time, that's fine. 
But I pray, Lord, for a grace to forgive. And then, Lord, I pray for us for courage to act, for courage to agape, for courage to live in a loving way where we can regard others as well as we regard ourselves. You've told us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, so help us to regard others as well as we regard ourselves. Pray your blessing on each one, Lord, as they go into this week. Pray the Lord's face shines upon you and he meets you every day and that you're aware of him in increasing measure, particularly as you encounter others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.